Hey, this is Brian. Um, this is a, a bonus episode, or you could say it's a catalog episode that we're putting back up of my conversation with uh, Killer Mike and uh, Killer Mike Render. M- Mike uh, is, uh, I'm sure you know this, Mike is one of the uh, sort of great thinkers uh, and speakers of our age. He's also uh, one of the most important uh, hip-hop artists in the world. His band Run the Jewels uh has just exploded over the past a couple of years. He's been doing this a long time. And when uh, when we recorded this episode, it was just in the shadow of the Ferguson riots. And Mike was just finding himself really in the spotlight um, as more than a hip-hop artist, but as a community leader and organizer. Since then, uh, he's appeared on many shows. He's led, he's been speaking at the best colleges all across the country. He's been really uh, leading a movement. And I saw him last Friday night on, on Bill Maher's show and was so touched by what he did and moved. He'd been wanting to get on that show for seven years. He'd been wanting that platform. And I thought he handled it so elegantly and with such uh, wit and, and such intelligence uh, that that I was I was blown away. And... Um, and for those of you new to my show, uh, I just feel like this episode is one that, that you should hear. I get more positive feedback from this episode of the moment than almost any other. And, and often it's from people who say, I never heard of Killer Mike. So um, if you've never heard of Killer Mike, uh, this is your chance to get to know him. And if you have heard of him, I think you have a chance here to get to know him in a way um, that, that maybe you haven't before. So um, here's my conversation with Killer Mike. It took place in New York City in november of 2014 uh hope you dig it hey this is the moment i'm brian koppelman thanks for listening i am sitting here uh at stage 48 in new york city with uh killer mike render yeah michael render killer mike fat boy skunk they call me a few names where i'm from and uh you might know him right now from run the jewels uh which he is one half of, along with LP. Yep. And um, Mike, I mean, this has been a long time coming, this conversation. Yeah, two years we've been talking. We've been talking online for two years after I heard your album, Rap Music. Yeah. Which um, completely blew my mind. I mean, it's like one album a year, one album every couple of years that really catches me. And uh, that album, uh, I thought was just, first of all, I, I, you know, I, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, to me and to my friends, that album seemed like it was just going to go to the stratosphere. When you finished it, yeah, did you think I've done something really special? Yeah, I did. Um, I didn't. I didn't just. I'd done great albums before in a pledge series, one, two, three, and I, and I never discount that series because that really is the foundation that the people had the faith to follow me into rap music that came with me, and the people that discovered me, you know, rap music and post you know, were, were new converts, but they're as appreciated. But I, I didn't think it was gonna go through the stratosphere. I knew it wasn't gonna tank, but I knew what it was gonna do. I knew Elle and I had made a classic. I knew we had made the best album that year. And I knew that this was a foundation in which if I kept going in that trajectory, I could build a new definition of what Mike was. Cause I spent the first half of my career just escaping the shadow of outcast. And I don't say that to be condescending or mean or bitter or angry. It's just that, man, when you're brought in the game by the biggest rap group in the world, unless you do something that is so significant that it sets you apart, you live in that 
that shadow. And there's nothing wrong with that for some people, but I knew based on my stance and my thoughts about stuff that there wasn't going to be enough for me. Did you feel, because within that construct and even those first couple albums afterwards, did you think you couldn't, somehow you couldn't really make this signature statement that you wanted to make? I mean, do you think you were ready to do it before you made that album? I think I was ready to do it in spirit. You know, you got to be willing to run a marathon before you even start training. But it's about actually getting out and conditioning yourself to do it. And the Pledge series really conditioned me to get to rap music because what I started understanding with each evolution of Killer Mike, I got better, I got sharper. The first Pledge I recorded with a house full of dudes, me and Grind Time. Second Pledge I recorded, smaller studio, smaller group of dudes, way more focused. Made the mistake of putting too many records on though to appease people. By the time I got to the third Pledge, I recorded it by myself. I was just in my own headspace. By the time I got to rap music, it was just LP and I. Right. Just that you'd found, in a way, your creative partner, like the other half. I found my musical soulmate. I was snooped and I found Dre. Right. You know? Well, yeah, that's a, uh, clearly a huge moment. And, and you guys have obviously influenced each other and kind of pushed each other Absolutely. to be greater and greater. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when the record was received sort of critically the way that it was, had you been, and you were singled out before that, but... Um, never like that. Yeah, never where it was like, oh, this is the album of the year. Yeah, exactly. And then, were you disappointed that it didn't sort of sell the well, way... Well, I wasn't disappointed in sell because, you, like you just told me, you're from a musical background. You understand record is, is not what it was. Unless you have a major label dumping an obscene amount of money into an obscenely good project, you're not gonna do what the golden days did of gold and platinum, right? But if you have a superior product and you're able to make it a part of the musical talk or the musical atmosphere at the time, you have an opportunity to get out on the road to sell merchandise and yes. to still be significant. My record had a fraction of the budget as Kendra Lamar's. It had a meager video budget. It had, in comparison right. to what Interscope had, it's no way I should have competed with that juggernaut. With that said, the two records that I talked about from 2012 are rap music and Good Kid in the Mad City. No, no question about it. And, and I think you built, uh, you got a whole nother audience out of that who were primed and ready for Absolutely. Run the Jewels for what you're doing now. You know, this, uh, I want to back up in case people listening aren't really familiar. I mean, you said you come out of, out of Outkast and uh, you, um, made uh, these records as a solo artist, you made rap music, and now you and LP are together in a, a group called Run the Jewels. Run the Jewels. And tonight is the second night of a sold-out stand Absolutely. at this place, playing to 3,000 people over these yep. two nights. Yep. And, uh, and, and I would say, you know, this show is called The Moment, and what I, what I really talk about is um, how people who accomplish remarkable things process the inflection points, the real high or low moments in, in their lives. And this would be a moment, but... Um, to me, the thing that happened and your role in, in post-Ferguson uh, has really captured people's attention. Yeah. And, uh, and in a lot of ways, you know, reading a ton about you and listening to your records, it does seem like you've kind of prepared yourself yeah. to step into this breach for your whole life. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I do. You, 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 like, you don't know your purpose. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a Buddha. I'm not a Griot. I'm not a golden child. But with that said, I do. I did recognize very early I had a special set of abilities, and I understood that the things that I was doing meant something, and I understood that I was supposed to learn certain things for purpose. My mentor died a couple weeks ago. Her I'm name sorry, is Alice Johnson, dear friend of mine from from North Chicago, working class family. Her she went to private Catholic school, wasn't a religious woman at all, but really absorbed the Catholic philosophy of helping from the nuns. 
tutored black kids. From there, went on to be a teacher. From there, married, divorced, went on to organize around Brown Lung, ended up in Atlanta, organized with Andrew Young, but really found her calling in the mid-90s when she organized a group of kids, all types of kids from all types of backgrounds, mostly gangster disciples and crips who were added with the transit cops at the time. Alice taught me to organize. And when I learned how to organize at about 15 years old, I understood that I have a purpose. Now, I knew I was going to be a rapper, still wanted to be a rapper, but I understood that as a human being, I had a different purpose than every other human being that I knew, and I knew I had an incredibly unique skill set that I could use. I didn't know when I'd get an opportunity to use it, and I went into being a rapper, and no one in hip-hop understood the type of person I was. Not the people who were buying records, not the people who were putting records out, and for a while, I was very disheartened and afraid that... I'm wasting the skill set on an art form that's no longer where the skill set is. Well, yeah, I wondered about I've wondered about that the whole time I've listened to your music. You know, the the dissonance between your intellect, yeah, your outward appearance, yeah, the <laughs> genre of music uh, that that you a, live in, a lot going against. And then also a lot of the biographical stuff of your life, which is you say on the one hand you learn to be an organizer. Absolutely. On the other hand, you were dealing at that age, right? Absolutely. Or soon thereafter. Yeah, drugs. I mean, yeah, because it, it, so, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like I was Pablo Escobar. Right. I, just, I just needed enough money to buy a bullshit car and some shoes, you know? Yes, but I'm saying, how did you how did you reconcile for yourself? Well, at 15... In other if you said that you had ownership at the time... Yeah. Uh, because I... A lot of us carry around two different ideas of ourselves. Absolutely. Like the secret we have about yeah. our capacity. Yeah. And then the reality of falling short of that capacity. Absolutely. And so you, at 15, 16, 17, yeah. knowing, because people who are smarter than, you know, people who walk around and, and can thin slice in a moment and know, I'm not saying I'm a genius, but um, I'm smarter than everyone I met today. Yeah. Which must have been your situation. It was. How do you then kind of reconcile that capacity with the fact that yeah you may say I'm not Pablo Escobar but you knew and you, you, know, you knew you were doing wrong I knew I was wrong and you knew you were like um, living to your kind of like uh, the lowest level of who you could be exactly what did you tell yourself well I I, I I told myself I was wrong I knew I was wrong my friends who were on that side told me I was wrong my friends on the other side was like but you're still helping people so it balances out what ended up happening is, instead of becoming as successful as I could have become, I did enough to do punk-ass teenager like buy a car, get some shoes, and then I just stopped. And I work a punk regular job, and I continue to organize. So I, when I talked about it on the verse on Crown, the guilt that I harbored, yes. it comes from that. Like, at some point, when I was like 15, 16 years old, I was just like, I'm not standing in a trap. I'm too chubby to run. I don't have the tolerance to be around this ignorance all day. So I just started taking the other 10 kids that were trying to be drug dealers, and I'd have my uncle, Ant-Man, just meet them at the station. And they'd buy a half ounces to an ounces off him. I'd take my cap, and I just became money. I just got money as connecting people. Right, so, so then you were just doing it more intelligently, and, but you were still in but, it. And, but, but what I did was just absolve myself of that guilt until later, until it hit me. So I was able in my mind to reconcile, well, I'm not selling the J's and I'm still organizing, but the deeper I got into organizing, the more I just relaxed and eventually it just kind of faded out with cocaine. But I will say with marijuana, I just never saw a problem with selling marijuana. I still don't have a lot of vices, I mean gripes with people selling marijuana. So by the time I went into college, I was just selling marijuana because my aunt had a boyfriend that sold marijuana about a pound 
guys at the college smoked marijuana. It was easy for me to do, and I looked at it like a harmless foul. And then I had ran into a guy from Los Angeles. I got a better grade. I started making more money. So marijuana just became the thing I sold versus cocaine. Well, yeah, I can. I mean, uh, I think you and I probably agree about um, marijuana. I mean, I know we agree about marijuana being legal, and yeah. uh, if alcohol is legal. Pot should be legal. Yeah. I would even say it's uh, my semi-educated. You know, it's yeah. uh, safer in many ways. But but I knew I was wrong. I have to it's say. not just wrong. I would say it's a level of a level of risk taking. Absolutely. Uh, forgetting the sort of moral component, you were somebody who could have. I, I mean, I hear you talk and I listen to your. I could have messed up my chances of going to college. But you could have. Yeah. I mean, but, but the truth is, and I, I'm kind of wondering about this. Um, you know, you're someone who could have been anything with your life. Yeah. Right? You could be a professor if you wanted to. I will be next semester, actually. Tell I'll me. I'll be teaching at Morehouse. What are you teaching? I'll be teaching psychology and the young black male in relation to hip-hop. How did you prep for that? I'm, now I'm prepping for it now. Um, um, I forget David's last name, but the professor is having me come do the course with him. Um, my only trade-off is I don't, you know, I mean, they, they say they want to pay me some money. I just want a degree. So we'll get that part figured out in the next few weeks. Oh, so you're going to get a Morehouse I, I want my degree. I started it. That's the only thing I didn't, I didn't give my grandmother that I promised her. I promised her that I'd go to Morehouse and I'd graduate, and I dropped out to do music. And that just disappointed her, you know? Not even in a way of that she didn't like or was proud of the fact I brought a Grammy home. It's just that it means something for a poor kid from Atlanta to scholarship in the Morehouse. You know, yes. it means it's a, it's essentially like a poor kid from Boston scholarshiping in the Harvard. Of course, it you is. know, no, and, it's um, incredible. I took I took that very seriously to the point where that's one of the life goals that I have to manifest before I get out of here. You, so do you keep a sense of that? Do you do you like kind of know the things you want to accomplish? Do you yeah. keep like I have to? Yeah. You keep life goals and yeah. yeah, I have to. I have to. I have to. You know, because if, if you don't set a goal, you'll just get caught running around in that same circle. And that's really what was the deplorable part about drugs to me. I found so many beautifully smart young men when I was running around in the streets. They could have been anything. You know, they were in this enterprise because it was a cash enterprise, but they never had the foresight to get an exit plan. And I saw so many lives wasted that I just was determined that I couldn't be one of those, you know. So what What was your grandmother? Who, now, you were, let's just go uh, back up a little bit. Your dad was a police officer. Yeah, my dad was a cop. And why were you, you were raised by your grandparents? I was raised by my mom's parents, yeah, because my dad and mom were young. My mom was 16, my dad was 19 when I was born. And did you live near them? I mean, nah, they lived, They both lived in Decatur. They lived in the suburbs. And I'm glad I did. Like, I love my parents, but, you know, f they were young, man. Like, right. they, they, don't, they didn't really need responsibility of a child. So, <laughs> I was, my grandma was 44. My grandpa was 54. That's where I needed to be. Right, they were ready. They, they were, were ready. ready. They, they were ready to pass on life, get life lessons. They were they were ready to give me goals to accomplish. They they had it figured out, and, and I'm glad I was with people who had it figured out, because with my intelligence, being raised by two people who didn't have it figured out would have only went bad. Like you know, my mom caught me reading Playboy, and because I was reading, she didn't stop me. You know, right. my, my your grandmother, my mom. Oh, your mom. My mom. Like, but my thing is, if I had lived with her all the time, like. How much, you know, discretion would have really been, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Like, I went to the, like, Elle and I are the same age. He couldn't go to the Fresh Fest. His mom wouldn't let him. Right. My mom dropped me off at the corner of the Omni, said, go in there, and if you're not back, when I pull up, I'll kill you. I was 10 years right, old. That's crazy. I, By yourself? <laughs> me and my cousin. Were you big? I, I mean, I was a chubby 10, but what? I had to stand on a chair to see. A chubby 10. <laughs> 
a chubby ten that could be a blowfly album, but that's a, <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like a blowfly album. Right? Oh shit. Yeah, I know you didn't expect the blowfly reference. I Sorry. did not. <laughs> I know. Well, like you, I lived a lot of different lives True. before getting here. Um, and you know, I have some years on you. But uh, so your grandparents raised you. Did school come easily at first? Yes, it was really easy. What were you interested in at school? Just just being smart. Because I realized being smart equalized was a great equalizer. I went. Did the teachers know you were smart? Yeah, they also knew I was bad as hell, and that was the problem. Like my wife asked my grandmother one time, "What was Mike like as a child?" And she said he was bad as hell, baby. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. How like, are you bad? She's even told my wife, she said, she told me in front of my wife, I'm sorry I beat you so much. I just didn't know any better. You were so bad. <laughs> now, you love your grandmother. Yeah. Even though she hit you. Yeah. And so, I mean, how did you feel about this whole Adrian Pierce while we're here? How did I feel about Adrian Peterson? Yeah, I mean, because you know, so I many said, people I, said, I know said culturally, I you said, don't understand. To me, you do not understand. You don't. My grandmother had a grand saying, and I'm not, like, eventually spanking your children is going to be phased out in this country in some capacity. Like, I, I've, how many times have I hit the girls? Once, twice? Maybe twice with the right. girls in their life, in their entire life. The yeah. girls are probably getting popped. That's not a spanking. That's a pop. But my grandmother would tell me, I'm going to beat you like this so the police don't have to. Right. I swear to God, that was her weekly message to me. And I got hit with everything. And you feel she had to. She had to. And I'm not saying Adrian Peterson has to. I'm trying to say I understand the culture that helped him become successful that he's now imparting on his children that I think is eventually going to phase out. Right. But right. this but this is the truth in African-American culture, especially with boys. You know that on the other side of self-discipline or lack of, death is there. If you don't, my, my father taught me there's no disrespectful way to say yes, sir, and no, sir. And in dressing authority figure or the police, you will always say yes, sir, and no, sir. You will always say yes, sir, and no, sir to me. And that was it. I understood it from there. And all it took was a time or two when the police rolled up, me saying yes, sir, and no, sir, and the dynamic of the conversation changing before my friends, who we were just running around doing punk together, when the cops rolled up, they just pointed at me to talk. Right, because they knew that I had already learned to communicate with you authority. You could get them. You had the best shot to actually get everybody out alive. <laughs> exactly, and it was those are really the stakes for you. Those I are got the stakes. Cops you felt. rolled up on us singing to police, and and when when we were like, I guess I had to be fifteen or sixteen because I was just running around, you know, kissing the neck of my older son's mom at the time. We were singing to police, and we didn't see a cruiser pass by. Cruiser passed by and stopped and got out and just went in on me. I mean, just went in. In my heart, I wanted to spaz out because I was embarrassed in front of these girls I liked. They were punking me out in front of my friends, but I heard my father's voice. You are to respect authority. You are to survive this encounter. I heard my grandmother saying, I'm hitting you like this so the police don't have to. So I understood that violence will occur on me. And I, and I bit my tongue. And they still laugh about it to this day, but I'm alive. Your friends laugh about it to this yeah, day. To the this girls day. laugh to about this, it to this day. day. Right, Malik, but you had actually, you had learned to suck it up. To suck it up. To suck it up. And then in your art, you're able to tell them to go f themselves. I am. I am. I am. And you can, and do you think it fueled do you think it, uh, that sense of rage that you had to bury fueled the, the desire to express yourself in I the think, way you did? I think rage... Because you don't... I would say your music to me is equal parts, uh, or as certainly as much like uh, 
empathy, love, and rage. Yeah, and the rage comes out of empathy and love. My rage comes less about my personal experience because most of the time when I've been engaged with policemen, I got caught slipping or I was doing something stupid. So I just take the L. I just, but my rage comes from seeing it done to others. That's well, because I, I know they don't have the capacity to fight it. They don't have the capacity through intellect or experience. They don't have the capacity through knowing what the power buttons are. They don't have the, 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 um, they don't have the tools within their means to, to combat it. And that's really what my rage is. Well, yeah, you rage at uh, the institutional, exactly. not only the institutional uh, racism, but, but classism, the Absolutely. institutional classism. Absolutely, because it's not just about race. No, I mean, uh, you know, your song Reagan on r rap music. Yeah. Here, can you spit the, just spit the verse uh, that, that talks about all the presidents? Oh, man, what is it? What is the last verse? Um... I mean, I have it here. I can say it. It just won't really sound as good if I yeah, say I it. Yeah, I just haven't done a Reagan in like a few months. What does it mean? Oh, there it yeah, is. The end of the Reagan era. I'm like level 12 Old enough to understand that. Oh, no, that's not the last one. This is not the Obama one. I say Obama. It's, oh, I thought um, that was the Obama one right here. Oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. I'm sorry. I say, you think I'm bull****. And then read the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude and slavery it prohibits. That's why they're giving drug offenders time in double digits. Ronald Reagan was an actor, not at all a factor, just an employee of the country's real masters, just like the Bushes, Clinton and Obama, just another talking head telling lies on teleprompters. If you don't believe my theory, then argue with this logic. Why did Reagan and Obama both go after Gaddafi? We invaded sovereign soil, going after oil, taking countries as a hobby paid for by the oil lobby. Same as in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm a dinner jar, say they coming for Iran. They only love the rich and how they love the poor. If I say any more, they might be at my door. Who the f this staring in my window doing that surveillance on Mr. Michael Render. I'm dropping off the grid before they pump the lead. I leave you with four words. I'm glad Reagan's dead. Well, yeah, man. And, you know, I can imagine people uh, like liberals, think, you know, with their self-satisfied smiles <laughs> listening to the beginning of the song. Yeah, and then it gets to the end. You know, and like, you know, like me, guys like me, just like, oh, Upper West Side of New York. Oh, I love, you know, yes, we're, we see this exactly the same. And then you twist it into a, an Absolutely. indictment of everybody. It is. But I'm struck by the fact that... Um, you have an incredible loyalty to your audience and to humanity, but you don't hew to any kind of received ideology. You're constantly like taking in information and making your own judgments. Yeah, you have to. And do you find that that's uh, put you in difficult spots sometimes? It with, does. It does. With like the hip hop orthodoxy? It does. It does. It does. I'm so. By hip hop orthodoxy, I'm supposed to hate all cops. I'm supposed to love Obama blindly. Um, I'm, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to support things that I don't support, and I'm like I'm not supposed to be conservative in my thoughts and ideas. But conser being a conservative is what allowed my grandparents to raise three children that were their grandchildren, because they were watchful of their money. They, um, they didn't fret in the business of others. They had other business, meaning, you know, rental properties. They were, they were very conservative in terms of their politics and even the Democrats they supported, you know? So it's like I was raised in a, like when you make jokes about people who hunt fish, wear overalls, um, are proud Southerners, like you think you're talking about the people on Duck Dynasty. 
Brown. You're talking about me. You're talking about Zach Brown, and you're talking about you at the same time. <laughs> yeah, like you're talking about me. Like I, I am offended by that. Not that, not that I'm defending the guys on the dynasty. But what I'm saying is, like, I'm a feverant supporter of the Second Amendment. Why wouldn't I be? I hunt and I fish, and I'm a part of a minority group that's only been free 51 years. Right. You're it, also, it, though, for gay marriage. Yeah. You're also absolutely. for legalization of drugs. Yeah. You're for equality in, yeah. in every and, way. And somewhere, conservatism got misguided and married to Christian principles that are f***ing crazy, yes. that I don't understand. Well, that's another thing that kind of puts you at odds with uh, hip-hop and, I'd say, even black music. Yeah. Orthodoxy, <laughs> right? Which is, which is, you're not going to get up on stage and thank Jesus. Nah. And I'll thank God. Well, you'll thank your conception of yeah, God. Yeah, but, but, but yeah. Which you lay out very clearly yeah. as not being any God you recognize from any organized religion. Yeah, I don't. I don't I'm not a. I'm not a. Um, I'm not a believer in the three Abrahamic religions. You know, I'll, right. I'll make that. And and not not based on that. I think that the God you guys are talking about is based on an African principle, African principle or deity or philosophy of God. But I can't accept the remix. As 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 it. So I'm not, you know, without judgment, without castigating. I'm just simply saying I choose not to participate in the insanity that says all three religions were made by this one guy. Yet we can't seem to get along, and we're murdering each other. No, I, I mean it's right there. You know, uh, uh, for me, the the track of the years, oh, oh my darling. And you know, you say I read the books, I did the math. Yeah. Don't need no preacher, preacher preaching on, on my, my, behalf. my behalf. No teacher can't teach my arrogant ass of blowing on privy while reading the scriptures as written by Egyptians and sipping on whiskey. Now hey, people baby, can sleep would. on that, yeah. but you're saying uh, the Egyptian, written by Egyptians, yes. sipping on whiskey, and you're talking about the fact that the archetypes that have been adopted, adapted by modern religion, actually came from the stories that old. Uh, civilizations told one another. Yeah, and the fact that you're smart enough to get that and a bunch of people aren't, it escapes me every goddamn time. Well, even Rap Genius <laughs> misses that. They don't yeah. under, Rap Genius does not understand the Egyptian piece of that. They don't. But it's not about, you know, like I said, I've just been around a while and I've read, I've read a lot of the stuff you've read. But what I find great is that, like, so Run the Jewels is considered, in a way, and I, I only caught today, actually, that you guys actually um, name-checked Tarantino. But to me, I, I, no, to me, it is, th these albums are Tarantino. Yes. Uh, they're Tarantino movies. I tell L that he doesn't like Tarantino as much as I do. Well, you but, snuck but, it in there, though. Yeah, but yeah, I, I always, like, he always tries to, he, he, sometimes he gets me trying to drop Tarantino reps. I'm like, he's my favorite guy ever. I'll put it in. Yeah, exactly. Tarantino does such a great mesh of, to me, all things that are, are, just like us, like American, just like the, the, the filth, the grime, the beauty. Like he has stories that are as beautiful and profane as Shakespeare. And they're told in jive and colloquial English. And the characters, black and white, are equally um, angelic or vile. You know what I mean? And, and there's something to love and hate about all of them. And that simplicity gives a complexity that we just don't get a lot. Well, right, and, and in, in your album, in these Run the Jewels albums, you are, uh, and, and it's interesting, you know, people will listen to it. You could listen on a surface level to these records as almost, you know, I mean, they're about, you know, heists and uh, yeah. getting what's yours. But yeah. right underneath it, right there is an indictment right there in that song, which is the most hardcore song. I mean, that verse we just said starts with your partner saying, I rap and, and, and you take it off with I rap. But where it goes is to a place where you're kind of saying, listen, if you come with me on this journey, I'm going to explode these myths. Exactly. And I'm going to explode these myths, and we're going to, I don't have all the answers. Don't. We're going to 
try to figure out the answers together as a community. Exactly, exactly. But the community you end up talking to as a result of that, you know, I looked, I was, uh, you guys were kind enough to hook me up. I had like the VIP upstairs seats last night. I'm looking out and the audience was not a typical rap show audience. No. I mean, you came out and you made a joke about it. You said, uh, you said, is Brooklyn in the house? And then you said, the Brooklyn in this house, sadly, I know is the Williamsburg plaid wearing. You practically said, you well, know, that's where my wife and I live. I was, yeah. I was like, I was like, I'm half of the year. I'm in Brooklyn. Right. Shots out to my hipster neighbors because right. that's who they are. But I mean, it's a weird thing to me that yes, you are recognized by the African American community, yeah. but you are loved loved yeah. by this kind of alternative almost like the Portlandia yeah. audience yeah. is who I looked and I was really encouraged to see it almost was like demographically accurate to New York because it seemed like there was like 20% of the audience was African American it yep. wasn't entirely a white yep. audience yep. but it was a lot of kids you could you could picture um, going to art house movies yep. listening to a lot of music from the Northwest yep. Um, a lot of EDM yeah. and and really kind of like going on this ride with you so and then you know Ferguson happens which is what I really want to talk about let me like, say yeah. I thought that my job was to tell the story of being an African American man to African American men I thought that was the job and I actually, I used to say to my wife, man, the audiences are all white, though. It's the weirdest thing. It's the weirdest thing. And I'm as loved in the black community but for totally different reasons. They like the music. But they love me as, and dare I say, a leader. Right. In a much different way. And then I realized maybe a few weeks ago that I'm right in front of the people I'm supposed to be in front of because what I'm doing is I'm an ambassador. So, I, like... God, the creator, whatever it is, doesn't need me rapping my life back to the people who live it with me. I'm supposed to be rapping this for the people who don't directly experience that because these are the allies to this ideology. If, if black males are going to ever get off the most haunted list in America, those kids that are in my audience now that will lead this country, black and white, the 20 and the 80%, those kids have an opportunity to engage in discourse with and because of my music and with and because of me in social media. And that dramatically changes the interaction between them and the audience of people I represent that I thought I was rapping for, but it turns out that's not who needed me in that capacity. This audience does. Don't you want them to, though? I do. I do. And I and they need you. Don't they need you? Don't they need you too? In other words, in much the same way that uh, white kids, for, you know, at a certain time, you know, there's this famous story of, uh, and I thought of it, and I, I mentioned this to my wife and my kids. When I saw you get up, so the other night when the Ferguson grand jury came, yeah. decision came down, you were the only act not to cancel their show in St. Yeah, Louis we were, that night. We were. And you got up and you made this incredibly raw, honest, and open speech. You really allowed, you know, so much of the iconography of, of hip-hop involves being hard yeah and you allowed yourself to be incredibly vulnerable both there and then in the interviews you gave the next day Absolutely. you allowed you know because you could have not you could have forced yourself not to say the words that would have made you've been on stage long enough yeah if you didn't want to like let yourself cry yeah. you could have not you could have yeah. forced i it. tried you know i tried but you let but you made yourself say this stuff i had to uh, and I thought of when at post 9-11 there's this famous story of Springsteen not knowing where his place was not knowing if he should record again and some guy came up to him on the street 
And so we need you, Bruce. Yeah. And then Bruce went and made The Rising. Yeah. And uh, I do think that, yes, it's great that this white audience is there for you. And, yeah. And, and, and that you are an ambassador. Absolutely. But don't you also feel like they all need you now? I think it's time now. That's what I mean. I'm not, now it's time because now I represent it in music, but I think that what I've gotten from the black side of rap in the last two weeks is we needed a pop. Thank yes. you for being here. I don't can't take my shirt off and drive a bunch of women crazy, you know what I mean? But I can eloquently... Some women, a little group of them. Yeah, <laughs> especially in the winter, I'm more popular. Sure. But I think that they need it, they need or expect or are encouraging me to continue because they're saying we're in. When we were in Atlanta eating at Papa Do's, a kid from Mississippi was telling me how much you like me. Then he looked at Ellen Wink and said, yeah, I like that run the Jews too, don't think I'm sleeping. So doors are opening. Right. Kids are finding, kids are finding it. Um, I just thought it'd be the other way around, but it's not. Like, black kids are finding it, and they're happy that a rapper that they like and that they trust that quote-unquote keeps it real goes on CNN and represents them in a, in a different way. Black men that grew up in rap that are our age are happy because now they can honestly say proudly, I listen to this guy, and if you don't like his music, look at his interview. I think that that had been the connection that was missing. I remember Lloyd Banks saying years ago, you know, man, I love pop, but I don't want to be pop. You know, nobody want to get shot for what they say. You know what I mean? I don't want to get shot for what I'm saying, but I'm so compelled. How can I not say it? Right. You know, how can I not? And I think that finally, black kids are catching it. Now, I don't know where it's going to be a year from now and a year after that, but I definitely think it's going to grow. Because when we did Atlanta, yeah, we sold Atlanta out and it was massive. But do you wonder why, like, uh, why certain of the, the really huge hip-hop artists haven't, you know, why Jay or Kanye haven't reached out and said to people, like, you got to listen to this kid, or had you... Well, I don't know what they have done personally. I know that Jay has been very kind to me um, behind the camera. He's given me an opportunity to be on his records. He jumped on records with Big Boy and requested I be yes. on it. He's been a... Um, like, Jay, Jay I, I remember being in MTV years ago. He walked by, he had his whole mob around him and whatnot. And I just quietly just kind of tucked off in a corner. And he walked up to me like they said, oh, so what? You, you acting funny? You ain't going to speak? That's great. So he was, he's still that. But with that said, I understand who, who he is. So I know he can't pay particular attention. But I don't know what he said behind closed doors. I know Tata, who's his right-hand man. If Tata said me walking down the street with a J concert, he opened the door saying, Mike, come in. Right. I, so I know that there's love and support there. And, I, oh, no, I'm sure yeah. that's what I'm I'm sure that those guys know how great yeah. you are. That's what I'm saying. I, I would think... I don't, you know, I think about the certain guys like um, in the rock world, Bono, Michael Stipe. Like yeah. When they would see somebody great, they would kind of try to lift them up. Yeah. And I, I keep expecting those guys to say, come I on the road. I think something is Kanye to say, come spend a year on the road with me. Yeah, I would like that. You know, I mean, I know No Idea is a big advocate of mine. He's, he's worked with, with Kanye, but I don't know why. I mean, that's a question I have to ask them. But what I do know is that, what I do know is that the people in their circles are the guys who hit me like Mike. It's dope. Mike, keep doing. Mike, I'm proud of you. So is that stuff yeah. that kept you? Cause, oh, yeah, I'm Chris Rock. Think like, about it. Chris Rock hit me on Twitter. That's what, what David Chappelle, um, Hammer, MC Hammer, like, like that's a, what if I did David Letter the first time. Hammer put, you're a hell of a performer. Like, so I've been getting the encouragement where I need it. And who knows if I was ready then, Brian? 
Like, really, like, who knows if my well, ego I wonder was about that. Place. I was going to ask you, if you were younger, so, I mean, listen, this is happening now. I saw that last night. They knew, the people in the room knew it's every happened. word. It's happened. This is the, this is the time, and you're 39 years old. And I was wondering, if this happened to you when you were 30, when you were 28. I would have lost my wife and everything, and my reputation and everything. You weren't ready. I wasn't. What kept Ideologically, you? I was ready, but my ego wasn't ready. My appetite was too big. You hadn't done all the work on yourself? Yeah, I had to. I mean, that was the best thing going through poverty and depression did for me a few years ago, was it forced me to be in a room with only myself. You know, and I tried to escape it with drugs and women and a lot of that stuff. And When was the depression? Right around the time I made Pledge 2. So 2008, what year? 2008, 2007 and 8. And you think part of it was like, why? Because... You know, there's this. I, I, I've often wondered why this movie Avatar was so successful. And yes, it looked incredible, and James Cameron's a genius director, you know. Uh, but I think it comes down to that idea that he realized there's this human need to be seen for who we are. Yeah. And I want, you know, you weren't really seen. Yeah, exactly. Right. I was just became a character that was an offshoot of a group that people kind of knew in passing. And that was torturous for me, you know, considering what I felt like I had to offer. Yeah, like you were I, coming and drop these like great verses, but you weren't really being nah, you. I wasn't. So how did you make this? Like, what happened to pull you out and make you the become pledge, you? Making the pledge series, making that's life one and two, making right. burn, making making um, God in the building one and two, making those records and being having a chance for people to get it and latch onto it. And the supporters that jumped on and followed me. Like, I remember a kid hit me on MySpace and said, yo, please you and Big Boy stop beefing. Because if I got to choose, I'm going to ride with you. But I don't want to not like out there. That's great. Like, that's when I knew, like, okay, you have a responsibility. Because now people are, you know, people are watching. So I didn't get it all straight in a year, but I got it all straight eventually. I figured it out. I figured out what was my ego what was really, really real. How did you figure it out? I like, I know I, when I've been in those spots, for me it was like journaling, meditation, w long walks, listen, reading. Like, what did you Same do? Same thing. My wife got into meditation, got me into it. Um, you I'm meditate gonna, now? I'm going to, yeah, yeah, hell yeah. I try to do mine in the shower. I can't, she has the ability to sit and just turn on the music, sit in the middle of the minute. I can't do that. I need water. I need the ability to close off electronics. And I just sit there and I close my eyes and I visualize and I think. I give thanks for. I accept and receive good energy. You know what I mean? It took me. It took me getting off alcohol, smoking herb. You know, not not in excess, but enough to just get. My mind is always moving so much that I needed to just calm. It took me. Dick Gregory gave her and me the strongest advice ever. She said, "What advice can you give us for our marriage? Because you and your wife have been together so long." He said, hold hands and look at a tree together. Am I lying? Awesome. We do that at least once weekly. Right. We just go out on our deck, sit quietly, hold hands, and just look. And, 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 and I tell my wife all the time, you're a witch. <laughs> right. And you, you had, so you had a sense uh, that you had to, you had to bust yourself out of it. I had to. I had and you to. Knew, did you lose the faith that you were like, had this... I don't want to say destiny, but that you had, you had this huge thing to give people, yeah. and then it was your obligation, let's say, to Absolutely. finally do it. Absolutely. Were you able to keep that front and center in the dark days? Yeah, but every time I did, I got it on so bad, it was hard. But that's what happened. That's the price of leadership, quote unquote. Like when you hear about Dr. King or Malcolm, and you hear about these people as champions, you don't hear about them getting. 
it on. Like I tell people all the time, the civil rights movement didn't start in Atlanta for a reason. They were troublemakers. They sit their ass to Alabama. Get the out of here with that bull. You know right. what I mean? I had to understand that, in, in a sense, what I was bringing to rap at the time I brought it to rap, people didn't want to hear that. People didn't want to know about it. People didn't want to approach it. People didn't want to deal it's with it. It's funny because I hear echoes. Now, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm older. <laughs> Uh, I'm not a rap, you know, I listen to a ton of music, but I am not like a rap fanatic. Yeah. I, there's always records, but throughout time, there have always been these really important records to me. And I hear in your music, and I always have, like uh, these echoes of KRS-One. Yeah. Uh, and of Public Enemy. Absolutely. And I hear echoes of Hank Shockley in what LP, Absolutely. LP does yep. uh, for you. And like, but somehow their music always had public enemy you know undercutting chucks first of all chuck who's a brilliant person and changed hip-hop and was incredibly important yeah not a lot of humor in what chuck nah. did and he rarely took kind of like a contrary point yeah. position right yeah. it was like because he had to at that time absolutely he had to stake out that, that was the time it was fighting apartheid right you, you he had, had to, to stake a very clear line absolutely. in what it was that absolutely. he was uh, doing absolutely, but then you from the beginning, when it was your own thing, yeah. were presenting a nuanced picture. Yeah. Did you know? Did you think? Did you ever think about compromising that? I, uh, every time I tried, it didn't work. Adidas was a compromise. I hated that record. Didn't want to right. drop that record. Yeah, what was that stand for again? All day I dream about sex. Like I, I never liked. Not that it's not a good record. And it was kind of a hit. Yeah, but I didn't like the record. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't. So how did it make you feel? Like a prostitute. It did. Yes. See, people always wonder about that. Like in sell, and it is true, right? When yeah. you're not working on, because why? You know, I have this gift, no. and right. I'm selling it out. Yeah, I know. And it was it was literally for a check. Right. <laughs> you you know? did it for the check. I did it for the check. And you knew I'm doing it for the check. Yeah. And with that, I had babies. I had to take care of my family, but I never wanted to do anything for the check again. I never wanted it. I didn't like the way it felt afterward. That's fascinating. Yeah. Man. I didn't like the way it felt, and I. I and I'm glad I felt it so early that when that feeling happens now, I just I don't accept it. Like I don't like if it's just something that comes. I know I don't believe in it comes from it. Like nah, I'm not. You mean the wrong kind of opportunity? Yeah. Like no, just no. So let's let's go back to you driving into Ferguson because I, I do want to, as hard as this is yeah. for you to talk about. So this grand jury verdict comes out. Yeah, and, we're, uh, we're on the bus. What's watching. going through your What's going through your head? I'd already knew when Eric Holder said he was going to resign. I was like, this ain't gonna go well. No attorney general resigns in the middle of a federal investigation this big. So you mean you felt his resignation was a signal also that the civil rights case wasn't going to go forward? The federal civil rights case wasn't going to go forward I, I, either? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to go forward, but I don't have confidence it is. Right. I'm still yeah. holding I'd like to be proved wrong. Right. So, I desperately like to be proved so wrong. So you took Holder's resignation as a sign, I can't move this thing the way that I want to move it. Yeah, I'm this not. ain't going to go right. So you were prepared. Yeah. And then I they started leaking stuff, right? Oh, you thought you were prepared. Yeah, and then I sat there and watched that prosecutor give that dry-ass manifesto of BS before he just finally just said what he could have said. We're not charging. And I just, you know, I, 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 there was a prosecutor, a former prosecutor on CNN, and they marked something, and he just railed against it, just saying this was basically just a, a, a soft pitch thrown, you know, to get the result the prosecutor wanted. And I walk back to talk to my wife, man. You know, my wife. You know, I'm an alpha male. You know, you, 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 you know, I know how to shoot. I know how to fight. I know how to fish. You know how to farm. 
I figure I could take care of my wife and family. But when your wife looks at you and says, you know, I got to wonder sometimes if God even loves us. You know, man, you, you. The only time I'd ever heard something like that was in reading passages from the Holocaust. Yeah. Where Jews essentially felt like God abandoned them and just said there is no God. No husband should have to hear that from his wife. No right. black person should have to hear from another black person that, that just God finds you undesirable. And I felt so weak in that moment. And I was crushed. Like, I was so crushed I could just silently sit in the back of the bus and weep because I don't have the answers. Right. You know? And it's like, And L you have your children. Me. Yes. My seven-year-old called me and said, Daddy. And I, I woke up to a, a voicemail the next day that said, Daddy, I want to know why they killed Michael Brown and everyone is so angry and violence is happening. And I'm just like, like I have friends who never are going to have to have this conversation with their seven year old. Right. And the fact that my grandparents had to have it with me and I'm now having to have it with my children and they may have to have it with their children if I don't get my together and my generation doesn't get out together then it's just an endless cycle and it does make you question does god hate us like and and even though i know that's not logical well even if you take god out of it does uh is this uh country built in a way that's inexorably um that's that's determined to it's has been predetermined that this can never become uh, a synthesis of people that exactly. it can never become exactly. a united place and look we don't have to you know what 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 the people on both sides sort of like reactionary people would say uh, is um, you know Darren Wilson is guilty no matter what yeah. what we are outraged about and I think outraged together about is that he never got a trial. There's no trial. I, I, said, I said just I uh, said, please I, oh my only God. a jury. I went to law school. I graduated law school, and I so I can. I mean, I know the likelihood of a grand jury not returning an indictment is unbelievably small. The these are supposed to be. Now people say, well, not when it's police officers. Look, you grew up with a father who was a police officer. All that people think so, and, and so I'm I'm with you 100%. Right? There's like if this were following a jury trial, where where we watched six people testify, he at, went for his gun. You know, he the officer had reason to expect that he went for his gun. We may not like it. We may not like that he stopped Michael Brown. There are a whole bunch of stuff we may not like. No one's saying Michael Brown was perfect. By the way, he shouldn't have pushed that guy yeah. in the cigar store. And right. But there's no, no trial. So I, I know that my... I I've can, maintained since the beginning. I've said on Brooke Baldwin when I was on CNN. Now I have to be back on our show tomorrow and I want to see again. My contempt for this case does not come from perceived racism. My contempt for this case doesn't come from any of those polarizing reasons that people are saying. My contempt for this case comes from an American child was denied due process. That's right. And if you don't approach the case from there, you set yourself up to have these silly public debates and arguments when my argument is a simple constitutional one. As an American, born on American soil, whether I came here as enslaved and toiled my people, whether we immigrated through Ellis Island, whether you came on the first ships on the Mayflower, as Americans we are promised 
of what this republic is supposed to be the shining beacon of the world in terms of individual human rights. And if you deny us that, then it's not safe for any of us anymore. Yeah, I just watched that, and the second that guy started talking, I, I, it was just obvious that he was as crooked as that the DA in LA Confidential. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. and you're like, right? Absolutely. No different. Go watch LA Confidential. Absolutely. That guy is bought and paid for by somebody. Now, listen, we all have our stories, and he has his story of his father being murdered. A tragedy. But a guy who knows that, go get therapy for yourself. Yep. Take yourself out of that job. That's yep. why people recuse themselves. Yep. But I want to get back to this emotional place because you said something to me last night. I heard you say in an interview, but I came here last night with my son. Yes, Sam. Sammy, who's an 18-year-old. And, uh, and you know, so he's 18. He's at college. When he's home, he's out very late at night in yep. New York City. And he might come in at 5 in the morning. Now, as you know, he goes to uh, an excellent school. He's... Uh, you know, wears really good clothes. He looks, he's white as could be. Yeah, seems and like a great kid. He's a great kid and works really hard. But I still worry about a taxi cab coming up on the thing to kill. When he's out till five in the morning, yeah. I am not asleep until he is in his bed. Absolutely. And you said, for you, it's magnified in a way I could never understand. Yeah, because I have to worry about a drunk driver. I have to worry about a crazy taxi. You know, I have to worry about any number of things. But on top of that, I have to worry about the people who my tax dollars pay a salary for potentially killing my son. I have to worry about systems, whether it be hospitals, that if something happens to him are supposed to look after him, not valuing him in the same capacity. I have to look at my son potentially waking up in a holding tank. Just all these things, just because he's a black child. I'll never forget when he was about 17 years old, he and his friends stayed out too long skating. They got they they got um they got kicked off public transit because it was closed. They couldn't ride all the way home, so he had to go to a strip club that I was known at. <laughs> he called me. He called us like I'm downtown. So I said, look, go to this strip club, stand in the parking lot. I'll call the um club, and the club sent the bouncers out just to make sure he was okay till I got there because I didn't want a bunch of black skater kids. I came down and picked all of them up, took all of them home, but I know cops are already reactionary and they, they hammer the head of skaters anyway, and these kids are black. So I'm just like, I can't leave all those kids. When I pulled up, I'm thinking I'm just getting my son. There's seven other kids there. Yeah, that's the thing that is so, I think, this hard for people like me to understand viscerally. Yeah. Like if they don't do the, you know, if they don't, kind of read everything and watch the yeah. interview like uh, the, there's this disconnect but you are you're uh, like you know I know for me I was whatever however old I was just out of college when, when Boys in the Hood came out not yeah. to be just like a corny person saying a movie but I remember looking at Furious Styles worrying about his kid absolutely and the John Singles movie is genius to me because it communicates there, this, the feeling you describe of you looking at your wife, this helplessness Absolutely. against this institution that even if it's not an evil machine by design, functions as a killing machine. Exactly. I call it the war machine. It's the war machine, man. It's the war. It needs to eat something. Have you made a track called that? Nah, not yet, but it may pop up on the next record. I just said it at Ferguson. At Ferguson, it just sprouted out of my mouth. But it, it, is, it is a war. We are given a new enemy to hate every three months. The one constant enemy we've had in this country for the last 400 years, black men in particular. Right. But that's a whole other debate and argument. But we're given as a country a new... My wife said yesterday, so what happened to Ebola? Right. You know, it's Bill Cosby. Now we're just afraid well, of it's Bill all, Cosby. It's all the distraction. You're giving me 
things to fear every three months. No like, question. You, you're giving me. Like, my primary concern on a daily basis is why are we still shipping kids that are your age, kids' age and my kids' age off the war? Why are we now, like when people said, when, when, I, when I say, um, same as in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm a dinner job, said they're coming for Iran, if you looked at a map, if you looked at a map, you would see that Iran is a country in the middle of two countries we're on. So when you ask yourself, why do they want a nuclear weapon? Why are they so crazy? If you woke up and in your front yard, neo-Nazis were in the front, and you yeah. looked out the back and neo-Nazis are in the back, you get paranoid and scared. And I'm not saying that they're right. I'm simply saying we are pushing this war-like machine everywhere. And also, by the way, you're, you're not saying America's neo-Nazis. What you're saying is, and it triggers into your empathy, so you have this capacity. So you can feel, not, you can intellectually understand it, and then you're able to sort of empathize with the Iranians. Yeah. And you can extend your empathy out to all these other people. I have to. Somehow, you got that in life. Did you always have that, man? Man, my grandmother, I'll never forget the story, man. I asked Betty. Man, I called her Beatrice because she didn't like her name because her name was too plain, she said. I said, well, your mom did spell it with an I-E. But I said, B, why do you... I found a letter she had wrote. She, there were sharecroppers at first. Her grandfather was a part, unfortunately, of the Tuskegee experiment. Right. So they were sharecroppers. They saved a lot of money. The government shot them some money for the Tuskegee experiment. Her parents bought more land. They ended up with a hundred acre farm. My great grandparents were fortunate so their kids could go to school. They could sell some extra to the store. They did okay. They weren't rich by any means, but they were okay. The, the, people, the family that they first sharecropped for, um, the father was incredibly racist in me, um, sexist also. Um, you know, was just a predominant term then. My, he didn't know if they were boys or girls, just a little he called the girls boys, boys, girls, my grandmother. You could tell the resentment in her voice when she said. But I saw her write the letter, the lady back. And I saw, and I, I asked her, man, I was just like, what? After I found a lady from the letter saying, Betty, thank you. Thank you for sending me food. Thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you for taking care of me. None of my kids reach out and talk wow. to me anymore. You know, so essentially, this sexist, racist household of kids that grew up in, once they escaped Alabama, they just never cared to come back. And I asked my grandmother, I was like, yo, how could you help this lady? You told me how bad they were to y'all. I gave her the black power business. I had probably just read Malcolm X's. I was on one. And she looked at me and said, they just people, baby. Sometimes people don't know any better. And when they learn better, they do better. And I had to accept that that point that I have oppressed, I have been the victor in an unfair ways over people and that I had done the same things to other people that had been done to me. And that was the beginning of me creating a sense of empathy and trying to understand the world in a different dynamic. Because if my grandmother could see the humanity in this person, and in this woman's last days, my grandmother may have been her only friend, her only connect. How could I? And they say my grandmother was a mean young woman. You get what I'm saying? So how could I harbor any resentment? George Wallace, I always tell people about George Wallace. People talk to you. George Wallace went from being one of the most vehement racists that we've ever seen to eventually being the governor of his state and having more black people in his cabinet than any governor before since. So am I to judge every other governor since George Wallace by his standards, I would have to say they were equally racist, if not more, because if he can have that many blacks in his cabinet, why? I don't, though. 
you know. I have I, I am appreciative that he found a sense of empathy and that he made amends for it when he died, but I also understand the political context in this country. And and when one one woman, your grandmother who had like the patience, yeah, the time to talk to you, the interest, yeah, really in a moment in like that instant kind of started you on a path that changed your absolutely. world absolutely view. absolutely let's just talk about your success for a second now because it's got to be so much fun for you so 2008 you're yep. in this you're in this lonely bad place you know a lot of people who listen to this are, are artists people who want to be want to be or even in whatever business they're in i get letters from people who are feeling stagnant they're feeling stuck i get that feeling and you must have had that feeling. yeah I, I had just made pledge too which people say was one of the greatest intros ever. I just talked over a beat on the yeah. intro. I was motivating myself out of a bed. <laughs> really? Yeah. That Pledge 2 was all about me motivating people. A lot of people argue that, argue over whether rap music or Pledge 2 are my best albums. Those two albums in particular. Well, because I got really introduced to you on rap, rap music. That's the one for me because yeah. it's what I yeah. probably listen to. It Pledge, I've had times. countless people come up to me and say, yo, I quit my job and went back to school. I quit my job and started the business. I became a totally different human being because of Pledge 2. Mostly black males. You you changed my life. Black males and young was white Was that your males. intention? Well, it was my intent to do it, but the person I was talking to was me. That's what great artists do all the time. Yeah. It was a, it's, it's an unintended positive consequence that these other people understood you. Yeah. So is that when you finally, Pledge 2 is when you started feeling understood? Yeah. So what does this feel like now? Like, um, you know, now? You, yeah. What does it feel like to you? You walk to walk out on stage like you did last night. You're going to win a little while tonight. Yeah. And see these people who are are looking at you, like you have all these answers. Like you figured it out. <laughs> I, don't I mean, know. do you know what I mean? Do yeah. You, do you I, feel like you figured it out? Nah, I feel like I finally got the club I wanted to be a part of. Right. I've never joined a fraternity or a club because I've always felt like they were too homogenous they were too just that one thing just that one train of thought there's no there's no challenge there's no there's no real relationship there's no give and take and learning and these kids I give and take and I learn from you know these kids help me grow they help me understand the world from a different perspective so when I step out on stage I feel like I'm essentially with my family and it's one of the greatest feelings in the world honestly because that's what, I, as an artist, I just want to be connected to an audience in that way. And how did you meet your partner, LP? Because you guys, we you were, know, LP made this incredible album called Cancer for... Uh, Cancer for Cure. For Cure. And he is... Um, I have to give a shout out to a podcast and radio show called Sound Opinions. Because that's yeah. how I... Yeah. Sound Opinions is how NPR, I found... <laughs> that's how I found you guys, right? Yeah. That's how I found your music. They were just going on and on about yeah. both of those records. We and I was just like, did Sound Opinions. Oh, you did? Yeah, we just Oh, I got to go listen. But I heard... I disagreed them about a lot of stuff yeah. but like the way that they played like two tracks one from Cancer one from your record yeah. and I was like well this is the thing but how did you two how did you guys come together and, and, and then decide to form Run the Jewels and then do you think this is the vehicle you're going to use from now on or are you going to continue to, it's a big question solo albums yeah. too um, Jason DeMarco who's a mutual friend of ours who's a vice president over at Don't Swim Jason came to me after Pledge 3 and said Mike we don't have a big budget. It's a meager budget, but if you want to do it, I'll get the money. Um, I want you to make an album. And I was like, yeah, okay. Well, you know, I need some money. Right. What, what kind of album are we looking at? I want you to make the album you always wanted to make. Wow. And I was like, what you mean, Jason? He said, I want you to say everything you ever wanted to say. And I said, everything? He said, everything. 
And when he said that, I was in. So the plan was to go in with a few different producers and make my version of America's Most Wanted. Right. You know? Yes. One, um, by the way, another one of my favorite. Me too. Um, you know. Me too. That album blew my mind. I, um. Has, have you met him? I, yeah, Cube. I opened for Cube two years ago in Atlanta. Great. He doesn't let people open for him. I was honored. And we, like, that's why, like, you'll, I'll send you the Pledge series. You're going to enjoy it. Cube is on a record called Pressure With Me. He's been on a record called Glad They Were. Like, I, I've got I don't know that record. I don't know his record with you. Yeah, I'll send it. I'll send it. But, um, Jason gave me the opportunity. I got in with L first. Within the first three hours, we had already started three records. Since then, we started Big Beast first. I wow. called Jason and said, L has to do this whole album. And then I just, I just got on. You just met him in this. You had never met him before. Did you know his music? Yeah, in Perithia. You didn't really know it. And then, did you? You just knew this is a meeting of the of the yeah. minds. Yeah, and I knew I, we liked each other instantly. We were same age, had the same conversation, had many of the same influences, and the ones we did, we found interesting in one another. Um, within three days, I was calling him every day, like, "You got to produce my album." At first, he was like, "Nah, I've been working four years on my record. I, I can't." And I'm just like, nah, you, you got to do this, bro. You knew. I just badgered the shit out of him. I badgered the holy hell out of him. And then once you guys got in the studio, how long did it take you to make it? I think we recorded over a six or seven month process, but that's because we were going back and forth. He right. was working on his, but I, so honestly, like, it took us the culmination of weeks, five to six weeks. And does he, does, when you work with a producer, or specifically with him, do... Does he, do you give him, him, does he critique your lyrics? Does he ask you questions yeah, we, I about mean, what L you're is, talking L about? and I, yeah, we do. He's a great lyricist. I mean, yeah, does he we write do. Yeah, and we trust each other. So, like, I don't write. I kind of walk around and hold a joint and mumble to myself. <laughs> That's how it happens, for real. Right. And, um, like, Crown happened at 3 in the morning. I was just high. And I just stepped up to the microphone. Did it. And it poured out wow. except for one line. And then months later, I sat in the studio trying to come up with that one line for like four or five hours. And Shana looked at me and said, figure out a way to put your grandma's favorite song in there, which is Lay Your Burden Down. Yes, that's the most important thing in the whole song. And that's how we got to that. It just came out just like that at four in the morning. Yeah, can't pick up no crown, holding what's holding you down. With, with L and I, yeah, I allow him to critique me because I trust him. He's my producer. He only wants the best for me, so absolutely. But, you know, the themes and stuff that come up there out of my head. Willie Burke Sherwood was going to be a different record. And L said, no, nah, you should talk about something on this record. And it made me think, like, I'll, I can't, you know, unless I, you know, unless I have Warren Buffett, you know, um, a mind or I hit the lottery for a, a few billion dollars, I'm probably never going to be able to, 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 enact, to a, you know, to put a building up with my grandfather's name on it. But if I create a, a, a song, Yes. You'll know it for the rest of your life. And that's what I wanted to give. And that, that's how Willie Burke Sherwood, a song happened. And it, it's the most autobiographical song I've done. I talked about being insecure, about learning how to read, I mean, about loving to read and things of that nature. You know, it, 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 is, um, it meant a lot more to, to men and people than I thought it would because it just meant a lot to me. It was just paying tribute to my grandfather. Man, I know you have to get ready to do your show, so we, we have to end this soon. But... Um I just have a couple more, a couple more things. That's uh, fine. What do you like to? What do you just because you know? What I like. It's to rare read. that an well, it's just rare that an artist has, you know, as much like the thing is your your records are equally heart and brain. So uh, yeah, what are you reading these days? Like uh, Ben what? Carson's book I just finished, and um, what was this new one? American? It was the he names all his books some quirky ass representation of America, but it's his latest book is the one I was reading just because I feel like he gets an unfair shake of the black community because he's a conservative right. and he's critical of Obama. 
he's one of the best neurosurgeons in the world, and he works. It's so out funny. Of poverty. My son put, picked that book up in the bookstore yesterday and was like, "Trash," no, because you know, because it's against the. Yeah, but it's uh, a good book. Yes. it really is a good book. You mean he raises important issues? Yeah, I mean, but you guys know, would disagree about a lot of stuff. Hell yeah, we disagree about a lot of stuff. But what does that have to do with the fact ben that Carson, he worked right? his? Yeah, yeah, he worked his way out of poverty using his mind. Right. You get what I'm saying? Like I that. Do. I don't care what you disagree Listen, with. Listen, this is really important because. You could be standing out here on a certain pole and having a certain position that would be way easier for you to defend out yeah, in the world, man. Yeah, and yeah. like, you're uh, you're owning. Not forget that you're saying like the guns and the rest of it, but like yeah. you're saying you're reading Ben Carson. Yeah. I, I mean, you are a leader of what people would think of as <laughs> uh, like uh, such an, 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 an Afrocentric liberal. I'm a pan legalized. You are full on. I mean. They wouldn't let you come on st on stage with De La or try. <laughs> they would just keep you up to that. No, but so, uh, but you're so that you read that on the one hand. Sun Tzu said, you know, to know yourself and know your enemy. You don't have any worries when you're on the battlefield. You know. Yes. I'm, I'm reading that. I love Iceberg Slim. I just ordered the entire Robert wow. Beck collection because I don't think there's better Pulp Fiction written. Incredible. Because he wrote, he wrote with the description and the depth of Shakespeare, and he wrote it from a street street, street perspective. Total I just think he's yes. the kid caboodles. You know, um, I um, I. So you still read a lot all the time. Saying I try to. On the bus. I try to. On the bus. Yeah. On the pick up books, pick up magazines. I don't really can't stop reading as much as if it's sitting there, I'm gonna pick it up. Like I'm reading Jude Angeletti's book, Rude Jude. I'm serious. Just a uh, just an amalgamation of crazy bull industry stories. Right. I'm reading that, like that's pretty cool, just to pick up in the morning. Um, but Carson's book, I, I wanted to investigate deeper the mind of Ben Carson and Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas was most affected by the philosophy of Malcolm X, which really helps me understand a lot of his decisions. I, I and I'm not saying he's a Malcolm, but when I when I when I see his rejection of of of, of say welfare, right? If you don't know Malcolm of the Nation of Islam philosophy, you don't understand that they reject that totally because they believe to accept anything from the state is to be beholden to the state. Right. So it, it doesn't make me say, oh, okay, you're right, but it makes me understand your psychology. Well, you can understand a psychology. I mean, that's a, that's a longer thing. Like, I read a lot about the Supreme Court. I'm, uh, we can yeah, trade I books think, in this area because, you know, he's I'm also... I'm not saying he's not bad crazy. That's all. But yeah. with that said... He's from the one of the poorest neighborhoods and where my wife is from. My question becomes, how do men like this convince themselves they're worthy enough to make it out? And how do you click that button off that somehow says, I have to comply to this other group of thinking that denies who I really am? So I'm going to figure out how to click the button eventually. But what I need is for young black boys to understand that if you persevere and if you value your mind in the same way that you value or that people tell you to value Lothario or athletics, this is possible for you. But to the transverse, you could be you could be Thurgood Marshall. You know, you could be what Magic Johnson has become, what Jamal Mashburn has become. You could be what any leader of black business people have become. But you're going to have to have an iron wheel steel determination. Like these conservatives that you've been taught to hate, that you don't like for whatever reason, you have to develop that mental aptitude, that toughness, that daring, the audacity to do it, or you're going to remain in the complainer's box. Yes. 100%. Do you know this book? Because you bring up, I've heard you in a couple of these interviews, bring up the, the, the Holocaust and what they, they went through. Do you know this book by a guy named Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning? I haven't read it. You'll love it. It's a, So it's a guy, Viktor oh, Frankl. 
Everyone out there, please read Guns, Jars, and Steel. Oh, that's an incredible, Jared Diamond. That's an essential book. Yeah, please read that. Everybody. Well, that and the one after that too. Yeah. Uh, the, the other book about how societies just take all their resources. Yeah, that and, one I haven't read. Eliminate. But if, if you uh, haven't read Guns, Jars, and Steel, please well, read. That. Great books. Man's Search for Meaning is this guy in the Holocaust and uh, you know every kind of bad thing you can imagine at the camps. Yeah. And how what he realized is. I have the power inside to change the meaning of these events. They don't have to mean internally what yeah. they mean from the outside. And if I decide to give them an empowering meaning, I can teach myself to do it and survive. And it's an incredible, it's, it, you're on this stuff. You talk about it. Okay. He found a way to like uh, codify it, to explain it. Gotcha. I think that book will blow you away. Gotcha. Um, I definitely will. All right, I'm just looking at my last questions here to see if there was anything I felt like if I don't ask you, it's a real problem. Uh, hey, you know, this is probably not going to be our last podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it again. Listen, um, Killer Mike, Run the Jewels. I think I did ask you everything I wrote down. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Have a great show tonight. And um, thanks for your heart and your brain and for everything that you're doing uh, and just for making great music. Thank you for bringing Sammy out. Thank you for coming out. And um, rap needs advocates. But bigger than rap needing advocates, um, black males need advocates. And I would like to thank you for advocating on our behalf by supporting me and by spreading a message that's contrary to the polarized message that we get about people who look like us every day. Thank well, you very It's much. my pleasure, man. I'm so glad to have uh, become friends over these last couple of years online. It's a great thing about social media. You can find Mike on Twitter at... All social media. Killer Mike GTO, like the car. Killer Mike GTO. You can find me uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me uh, at themomentbk at gmail.com. You may not send me movie ideas. If you do, I will send people to your house. But send me anything but movie ideas, too, at themomentbk at gmail.com. Thanks, Mike. Love and respect. Bye. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.